0: This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-601-BABY. That's 855-601-2229 or visit preborn.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone.
1: Are we going to stand with God? Come with me. If the word of God
0: says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is.
1: And now, here is Janet Mefford.
0: Thank you so much for joining us again. Any Christian who has been paying attention in the last several years is sure to have noticed how many famous pastors of late have engaged in some shocking immoral behavior that ended up really killing their ministries, and even more shockingly, some have dared to lay low only to relaunch their own churches later as if their previous sins and scandals never even happened. What are we to make about all this? More importantly, how do we get back to stressing biblical and moral integrity in the pulpit by emphasizing the eternal perspective that is essential in any ministry? We're going to talk about it today with Daniel Henderson, a former pastor of over two decades. He's now the president of Strategic Renewal, and his new book is called Glorious Finish, keeping your eye on the prize of eternity in a time of pastoral failings. Daniel, it's great to have you back to the show. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you, Janet. Vital topic and glad to be in conversation with you.
0: Well, it is a vital topic. I've been a little worn down, I think, by a lot of these stories that have (laughs) emerged over the last several years. As you can imagine, it's just been crazy. But you actually say in the book, you were called in twice to churches where you succeeded a pastor who fell. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like to be the next man in after somebody fell in a church, a pastor?
1: Well, it's obviously nothing you plan to do or want to do. Uh, Some people call me the OSHA pastor, you know, coming in and clean up the mess, (laughs) and uh, I never wanted to do it once, wound up doing it twice, but that's where all the lessons came from. Both of these were high-visibility moral failures that made regional and and even national news uh, very large churches, and um, both very different. The first one, the pastor had actually covered up uh, his his immorality and his indiscretions for eight years. Mm -hmm. Um, The other one, it had just happened when they discovered it. But in both cases, lots of hurt, obviously a huge trust deficit, the name of Christ being dishonored, and a real rebuilding process. But, you know, the lessons from that, Janet, really have become framework for what I wrote in the book, because you learn a lot when you're the cleanup guy.
0: Well, I can only imagine that. That is a really hard calling, but an important one, because part of what you're doing when you're the man called in next, you're trying to not only lead the church, but you're also trying to restore, it would seem, faith in the ministry. Did you feel that way when you came to those churches? I have to, in some sense, redeem the office of the pastor and the eyes of these people who have been so discouraged by what happened with the last guy?
1: Yeah, that's right. You know, and again, they think, you know, this this guy, uh, you know, preached, baptized, married my kids, and all the while these things were going on under the surface. So you really do have to rebuild trust. And, um, you know, th- and as you know, that comes from faithfully teaching the Word. It comes from, you know, real accountability that you build into the, the you know, just the processes of ministry. Right. And in our case, some extraordinary uh, focus on prayer, because, Only the Holy Spirit can really rebuild trust and restore people's confidence in church leadership, and in some cases, even in the power of the gospel. Sometimes they think, well, if it didn't work for him, will it work for me?
0: That's a really important point. What do you think about pastoral failings in general? It's always been something that has occurred, but maybe in the Internet age, it seems like it's happening more frequently, especially with some of these big-name pastors. But what is your take on why this might be going on, And, and if there's any special element to the fact that we're seeing more of it?
1: Well, I think it always, and in the book I talk about this, I think it always starts with just spiritual neglect, obviously neglecting their relationship with the Lord, That's number one. You know, when that's vibrant, that's the ultimate accountability. It's the ultimate spiritual health for a ministry. But I think in time, uh, that leads to neglect, leads to self-reliance. And that self-reliance can lead to professionalism and a sense of entitlement. And pretty soon, uh, as I write about in the book, there's a compartmentalization that that moves into one's life, Hmm. separating one segment from the other. You know, it certainly is more visible today, Janet, because of the Internet and the news. But I I do think it's more prominent today as well, just because of all the unusual temptations that... I think, are unique to our media craze culture as well.
0: Yeah, well, all of that stuff is really important. I want to get into more of it in detail. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are also about the fact, I've seen this over the course of my life, it used to be, generally speaking, at least in my experience, that if you were part of a denomination, you had men going to seminary, you had ordination, you had the church doing all these interviews, and that still goes on today. But this phenomenon of men starting their own churches and kind of becoming this star of the church, is a rather new phenomenon. Do you think that that has any bearing on what we're seeing in terms of the later pastoral fallings that come about?
1: Oh, I think it does. Again, the the motive for getting into ministry obviously affects everything. And you know, when Paul said, if you want to be a, an elder, a bishop, pastor, you desire a good thing, 1 Timothy 3, what happened back in Paul's day was you're the first one to get your head chopped off. when hmm. persecution comes, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so it's really a commitment to sacrifice and, and, you know, seriousness about the teaching of the Word of God. Unfortunately, again, today, uh, kind of the rock star clergyman phenomenon has motivated, I think, a lot of people to get in the ministry for the wrong reasons, you know, to try to prove their significance to become a person of importance. And um, they take a lot of shortcuts getting there, and obviously that winds up becoming part of the, the reason for the downfall.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine the Apostle Paul caring about Twitter followers or book deals. Somehow, I just don't think he would have cared about that. That's right. <laughs> but totally agree. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned something really important, which is when we're looking at the biblical qualifications for pastors, we would go to passages like First Timothy three and Titus one. Mainly, those traits that are mentioned in in distinguishing who should lead the church, who should be the elder pastor, elder really are character qualities, and I wonder how much you would regard the issue of character as being a fundamental issue to examine more on the front end when you're hiring a pastor.
1: Well, that's obviously we know that's why Paul cautioned the church by uh, you know too rapidly laying hands on someone who others appointing them to ministry. Uh, there needs to be a proven uh, track record of character and faithfulness and clearly a grasp of the Word of God that is going to be healthy and, and Christ-honoring. Uh, again, that, that's why so many of our denominations and associations build in things like ordination and internships and residencies, yeah. because it requires us to see the lifestyle of someone before they take on that very serious task of filling a pulpit, preaching the Word, and leading by example.
0: Yeah, amen. Now, you say something really good. You say a lot of good things in this book, but one of the things that you say is church leaders commonly teach about living with an eternal perspective, but what does this look like in the daily choices of ministry life? So broadly speaking, how would you answer that?
1: At the beginning of the book, something just really riveted me, and I wrote about it, and that is that, you know, we've got to really define what we're really called to, and I asked the reader, you know, complete this sentence, I'm called to, and we put a lot of different answers in there, you know, to be a deacon, or, you know, it could be a pastor, a radio host, a mother, a father, whatever. But the verse that really riveted me and gripped my heart, First Peter 5, 10, says that we are called to His eternal glory in Christ. Yep. And that may sound very ethereal, but it's very, very practical. i I'd say in the book that Everything we do this side of eternity is preparatory. That's all it is. It's, it's a vapor. It's significant, but it's significant in light of what's on the other side of eternity, and that is Christ's eternal glory. And in fact, I just got off a coaching call with about 10 pastors with the book, and we were really saying how practical it is to realize that you've got to decide what the scoreboard is. And the scoreboard is in heaven, obviously. The scorekeeper is perfect. And he's on the field with us. You know, he's not just looking from a a distance. He's on the field with us. He sees everything we do. He never misses a call. And his reward is eternal. And I think that shifts our focus away from comparison and we call it the nickel-and-nose game, you know, how many people came and what they gave. And it really helps us realize the essence of our calling is eternal. We've got to keep that in front of us on a daily basis.
0: Yeah, that's so true. And I would imagine a lot of pastors say it's difficult in the ins and outs of daily ministry to remember that. That's why it's so hard, because I have so much on my plate.
1: Mm-hmm. I always say discouragement is a temporary loss of perspective. Mm. <laughs>
0: and,
1: and that's a daily battle for every pastor. And, you know, busyness and uh, criticism and financial pressures, I mean, the list goes on and on, can blur our perspective. And so I think every day we, we've got to come back to the truth of what are we really called to, where is the scoreboard, what really matters. i got to keep my motives pure and my methods honorable because this really matters in the forever kingdom of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
0: Excellent. We're going to pause. Daniel Henderson with us. His book is Glorious Finished. We'll come back to the conversation after this break on Janet Meffer today. A mother's womb has now become the unsafest place in America, with abortion being the leading cause of death and babies being aborted up to term in some states.
2: I was afraid. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion.
0: Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country, helping moms choose life. You see, when a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. She did let me hear a heartbeat, and I was like, wow, it's something like living inside of me. It was a beautiful thing to hear. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today and help save 400 babies by the end of this year? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds, and now through a match, your tax-deductible gift is doubled, saving 10 babies' lives. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent his son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's word to Bible-less believers around the world for only four $5 or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800 YESWORD. That's 800 Yes Word, or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the Scripture. There are those who have been looking for the Scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. That's 800 YESWORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Welcome back, it's great to have you with us and great to have with us Daniel Henderson. He is president of Strategic Renewal. He's also a former pastor of over two decades and he is out with a great book called Glorious Finish, Keeping Your Eye on the Prize of Eternity in a Time of Pastoral Failings. And this is also something that every Christian needs to keep in mind, not just the pastors, Daniel, obviously that we all have to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, who is Jesus Christ. How would you begin to advise pastors to start out with that eternal perspective and maintain it. What sorts of things need to happen in the daily life of a pastor to keep that eternal perspective?
1: I think, Janet, it all begins with a life of personal worship, obviously. And again, as I mentioned earlier, the the contrast to that is spiritual neglect. But to to really be a worshiper, and I don't mean leading services on Sunday, right? But I mean really being one who seeks the heart of God in meaningful rhythms, of life and a spiritual pursuit, and we talk practically how to do that. I suggest even the book, and I think that leads to a heart of humility. I think worship and humility are really two sides of the same coin, mm. and then that sets a whole trajectory. I think on a daily basis as to to why you do what you do, how you do it, and what you what tends to trigger you for good or bad or otherwise, and um, I, one of my my fellow uh, pastor said it once, uh, Vance Pittman is his name, he said, I used to think I was called to ministry, but now I know I'm called to intimacy, and ministry is just the overflow of my intimacy. And I think that really summarizes it really well as to to what the source is of a really eternally significant ministry,
0: right. But now, of course, I think of some of the pastors that I've talked to over the years who say, I'm so busy. I'm an administrator, and I've got to do this and that and everything else. And I almost feel like i I, I am neglecting my time with the Lord simply because my time is so spoken for all the time. How do you carve out a time each day really to study the Word as a Christian, not necessarily doing the academics of preparing a sermon only? but having that fellowship with the Lord every day and that time in the Word. Are there some tricks of the trade you've learned along the way as a pastor on how to make sure that takes priority?
1: A couple of things come to mind. One of the things we talk a lot about in our prayer training and we coach pastors in terms of prayer leadership, but it's the difference between seeking God's face and seeking His hand. You know, His hand is what we need Him to do for us today. His face is who He is Mm -hmm. And even the model prayer Jesus gave is really clear. You always seek His face before you seek His hand. <laughs> and I would say, if all you do is seek His hand, you may miss His face. But if you seek His face, he will be glad to open His hand. As it relates to pastors, again, we can tend to be praying just so we can get through the week, just so we can manage a, a board meeting, just so we can get a sermon together. I would suggest all those are good prayers, but they're prayers that are seeking God's hand. We need to set our hearts every day to seek God's face, to seek Him simply for the beauty of who He is not what He does for us, not how He's going to help us manage things. So that's one. And another thing I talk about in the book, Janet, and I have practiced this over the years, is when you get to that point where you're running on fumes, you're just over busy, you need a reset. And uh, I have recommended in this book and to pastors that, you know, at least twice a year, you need to go away and, and have a personal spiritual retreat, not to plan ministry, not to strategize the vision, but simply to be and to be with Jesus and to practice the disciplines of of solitude and silence and fasting and meditation and prayer and Bible reading and good, rest, good. Uh, because you just you have to do that. You got to reset your soul every once in a while in the treadmill of ministry.
0: Well, you do. And would you say that as a pastor you would have more of a unique spiritual warfare experience than you would if you were not a pastor? Do you find differences in the sorts of things that pastors go through via the enemy uh, as opposed to the layman?
1: I sure do. Obviously, the enemy wants to take any of us out, but I use a bowling analogy, Janet, I, I say I'm not much of a bowler, but one thing I know, it's really hard to get a strike if you don't hit the head pin, yeah. and the devil knows that, <laughs> yeah. and it's not that pastors are more important, they're just more influential, yeah. and the enemy knows if he wants to take out all ten pins, he's got to hit the head pin. In fact, the best strike is between the head pin and the one next to it, yeah. which is often the marriage, you know, or relationships in the staff, whatever the case is, so Yeah, the enemy's a strategist, and he knows what a a real high-impact hit really is which is why we really have got to pray for our pastors in that regard.
0: Absolutely. And what about accountability? What do you think is an appropriate accountability structure for a pastor? You know, in many churches, there will be additional staff members who can keep you accountable, but, you know, that, that's not a fail-safe. So what is a good system that you found for holding pastors accountable? So, you know, in the best case scenario, a moral failing would not totally be possible because there are too many people who are around you and really paying attention to you.
1: Yeah, I talk about four dimensions of accountability that actually uh, was written about in another book called The Resilient Pastor. But I really think they're right, and they're all relational, uh, Janet. One of them them is a mentor. I think every pastor needs an accountability to a mentor who can really invest in his life from further down the road. Uh, The second is an ally, and that, as you mentioned, would probably be a staff member that we work together. We try to be transparent and authentic. But that's different than the third one, which is a confidant. And even in the coaching with our pastors, we talk about the fact it's really not fair to make an ally a confidant. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because even an elder or staff member, uh, they have a dual loyalty. One is to you and one is to the Church. And if you share something that could be potentially compromising, and hopefully you don't, well, they're going to have to side with the Church. You need a confidant that you can spill all your guts with, who's committed to your holiness and your sanctification, but probably outside the system. And the fourth one is a protege. We don't think about that. Uh, But for years, I mentored 12 young men every year. And that's accountability, too, because you have these younger men looking at you from a different angle. So I think real accountability is a mentor, an ally, a confidant, and a protege. And I've been challenging pastors and our coaching, make sure you've got all four of those dimensions of relationship built in because I think that'll really be a biblical process of, of
0: accountability. Yeah. Well, you know, when I think about the, the pastor's marriage and you're so much in the spotlight, do you tend to find that among the pastors who have moral failings, there's a problem in the marriage? Or do you think it's more along the lines of there was a character flaw to begin with? Or, you know, what sorts of dynamics tend to be there when you do see a pastor, for example, who who commits adultery?
1: Yeah, well, in the, in the area of adultery, of course, there are numerous reasons why a pastor may be disqualified <clears throat> related to money or abusive, you know, behavior, whatever it is. But certainly, yeah, I mean, you know, the biggest antidote to, to crabgrass is green grass in your own field, right? And I think the, the reality is that, um, you know, pastor who goes after the bad stuff, or the crabgrass after astroturf, whatever you want to call it, it's because the, the grass of his own marriage has not been kept healthy and green and vibrant and so there certainly is a connection there in in that regard
0: right yeah. Right. That's true. What about churches? Because when you're, you know, listeners who are tuning in and hearing about this may not be pastors themselves, but they'll say, boy, we really want to support our pastor and make sure that our church is not going to go through some of these scandals that we've seen in the news. Do you have advice for churches on helping their pastors really stay focused on Christ? Things like perhaps giving them more opportunity to get away and to be able to have these times with the Lord and not packing their schedules so tightly, things like that?
1: Yeah, a number of points of advice I would give. Uh, The first one, as we already mentioned, is pray. You know, it's hard to be a critic and an intercessor at the same time. Mm -hmm. And even mobilizing the church to pray. I was blessed over the years with pastors' prayer partners, over 100 men who prayed for me every day. I don't know that I'd still be in ministry, and I don't understand the mystery of it all, but without their prayers that sustain me. I think encouraging a pastor to keep good priorities. We are very strong about the priorities of prayer and the ministry of the Word. Uh, I say, you know, often that the devil doesn't have to destroy a pastor. All he has to do is distract him. Hmm. And so just pray that he'll have clear biblical priorities. Yes, making sure he's taking his vacation, making sure those around him are encouraging to rest and stay focused. And uh, my friend Jim Cimbala, you know, told me when he read this book, he said, you know, everyone in the pew ought to read this because it really helps them understand the realities of the battle they face and the choices they have to make in order to even pray more intelligently and be practically supportive in any way they can.
0: That's really good. You know, and we had talked a little bit about calling in the front end, but how would you define a call to the ministry? Because that's really where it all begins. You you do have, unfortunately, men who are in the ministry, who at least I've experienced shouldn't be in the ministry and probably weren't called to be in the ministry. But how do you tell the difference when, you know, a man really is called and a man is not called? How do you deal with that before any of these things ever come about? Because It seems if you start there, there might be some, you know, good moves you could make that would fend off some of the problems that might come along later.
1: Yeah, an anecdotal response first, Janet. I was sitting with Henry Blackaby in the Green one time. We were speaking at a conference together, and in his sage wisdom, he put his hand on mine and said reflectively, he said, You know, I'm convinced after all these years that there are more men in ministry out of insecurity rather than out of calling. Oh, wow. And that was riveting, you know, and I think— uh, you know, to, to use ministry as a means to bolster your own sense of self-significance, I think, is always a misfire. And you can see the fruits of it, you know, the drivenness, um, the insecurities that come up, you know, when conflict arises, et cetera. And certainly you can be genuinely called and still struggle with insecurity. I think all of us would relate to that. But but I think just a Christward focus... I mentioned, Janet, I just got off a call with a bunch of pastors, and we ended with this whole focus that... The Bible doesn't talk about dying and going to heaven, it talks about dying and going to be with Christ. Amen. And I think the mark of a truly biblically called leader is their focus on Christ, not on ministry, not on building a church, you know, not on growing an organization or having a platform. I think the real evidence of someone who's called, genuinely called, is their passion for the person and the glory of Jesus Christ uh, through his gospel.
0: That's so right. That's so right. And that returns us back to what you said earlier, that this uh, experience of personal worship of the Lord Humility goes along with that. It, the more that you spend time with the Lord, the less you'll rely on yourself. You know, He must increase and I must decrease, becomes much more of your experience, I think, when you really have your focus on Jesus Christ and, and not just on what am I going to do today in my ministry. That's
1: right. One of my mentors years ago, John MacArthur, you probably know him. I worked for him for a few years. Yes. He always said that the key to humility is a high view of God. Well, you know, that's more than just having a textbook of theology, that's a daily experience of God that renews your mind around the beauty and wonder of who He is to help you see yourself as you are. And and part of that is realizing his unconditional love for you so that you're not having to prove yourself in ministry. That's but great. You're letting Christ live out his life
0: through you. Love it. Glorious finish. Thank you. Daniel Henderson with us and we'll be back. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-601-BABY. That's 855-601-2229 or visit preborn.com.
1: This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford.
0: A lot of us remember that famous quote from Anna Karenina, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And that's certainly the case. But my next guest notes that unhappiness in families often can be caused by hidden destructive behaviors that the members have either overlooked or never acknowledged. What are those? We're going to talk about it today with Dr. Magdalena Battles, author of Six Hidden Behaviors That Destroy Families. She's also a conference speaker and has a website, livingjoydaily.com com. and Magdalena, it's wonderful to have you with us. How are you? Good, thank you for having me. Sure thing. You you think about bad family behavior, and most of it, I guess, we would imagine, is upfront. Why do you highlight the hidden behaviors?
2: Well, the hidden behaviors um, there are these patterns of behavior that exist in every family, and. Um, What happens is these underlying problems, they can fester and eat at relationships and eventually cause estrangement and people not wanting to be around each other, not because of huge issues or fallout from the family, but because of these little problems, these hidden behaviors that really destroy families. And a lot of people don't even realize that they have these behaviors going on, um, you know, such as criticism. They don't realize that they're being critical to their family every time that they're around them. Yeah. And it drives their family members away.
0: Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And and it can be the little stuff, it, relatively little stuff, I should say, that sometimes you don't pay as much attention to, but that can be your undoing. And you've got these six hidden behaviors, one of which is a failure to forgive or apologize. That's kind of an easy one to wrap your head around, but we are commanded in Scripture to forgive as we've been forgiven. Can you speak to that issue a little bit about how that manifests itself in families and does damage?
2: Yes, absolutely. With a lot of families, we end up harboring resentment and anger towards family members because somebody hasn't apologized for something that they've done wrong. And so we have a lack of forgiveness because they haven't apologized. Well, in Scripture, it doesn't say you must forgive when they as soon as they apologize, <laughs> No, it just says we must forgive. Uh, And so we need to learn to be people who are forgiving, even when they may not say the words, I'm sorry. Some people, some families function in a manner where they move on. They move past the behavior, and um, they may not apologize, but they'll do it in other ways in their behaviors by, um, you know, bringing you a meal or, you know, just extending an olive branch and inviting you over for a holiday. So they may not have said, I'm sorry for what I did, but they move forward and they continue with your relationship. Right. Well, what happens is, the person who's been offended, obviously, they're going to have a hard time getting over it, because they're still festering in this, you know, anger and, and going, well, why won't they apologize? You know, why can't they say what they did was wrong and say, I'm sorry? And um, again, Scripture doesn't tell us that we only forgive when somebody apologizes, uh, apologizes to us. It is, forgiveness comes from a state of the heart, and what it, is, it, what it means is that we forgive in our hearts so we don't harbor resentment. We let go of the anger and we turn it over to God and say, God, help me to um, heal my, my hardness in my heart and help me to forgive this person so that I can have a relationship with them.
0: Yeah, that's really good. That is important to forgive and, and not turn everything, you know, every little molehill into a mountain. On the other hand, though, mm-hmm. you'll have situations where people are different. I, I found this in life where you have certain people who can just move on and it doesn't really bother them if they did something offensive, while the other person is just really upset and hangs on to it, who needs to forgive, but also wants to discuss it. How would you mm-hmm. recommend people resolve that? If, if you really are saying, listen, I, I really deserved an apology for that. I can't move move on until we discuss it, but the other person isn't very inclined to sit down and have that conversation. How can you do that? What are some tips for being able to break that barrier down and be able to discuss the problem? Right.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Now, one thing that Scripture teaches us is that we should go directly to the person and talk to them face-to-face. It's not something where we bring an entourage or bring a bunch of other family members with us to back us up and side with us. No, we just need to go one-on-one and talk to this person. And you do it in a, in a situation where it isn't heated, where you're not currently in an argument or um, having an issue. So you, you say, you know, I'd like to meet you for coffee. I have something I want to talk to you about. And, and when you go to them to talk to them, you need to approach the uh, situation with a conversation and a tone that is uh, seeking to heal the relationship, not to create more divide. Because sometimes when we get defensive and we say, you did this, you did that, it's only going to cause more fracturing in the relationship. So if you truly want restoration of the relationship, then you can sit down and say, I just want you to Uh, see it from my side and and I want to hear your side as well. And I'm telling you this because I do love you and I want a relationship with you and I want to help heal our relationship. And setting it in that tone helps to soften their heart too. And then you have to have be willing to um, not expect an apology because sometimes Mm. there are people that, won't apologize. Yeah. But you have to make that decision that it doesn't matter what the outcome is, whether they apologize or not, I'm going to have forgiveness because God calls me to forgive regardless.
0: That's great. That's great. What about criticism? You had mentioned criticism before. Sometimes you'll have constructive criticism, but oftentimes in families, it isn't so constructive at times. How, how do you differentiate between you just insulted me versus you really have my best interest at heart? What? How do we handle that whole issue of criticism in our families?
2: Yes, criticism is one that is more common in families, one of those hidden behaviors that just keeps bubbling up over and over again. Um, With criticism, we need to start being a little more conscientious of how we treat our families and how we talk to our family members. A lot of times, Our criticism comes from a viewpoint of we love you and we want to help you and we want you to be the best person you can be, so we're going to tell you how to do it. Well, that can come off as insulting, you know, saying to your sister, well, you know, your dating life would be better if you could lose 30 pounds. No, It might be true, but it's also very insulting. Yeah, I didn't ask for that, sis. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And what Scripture tells us in in the Bible in Galatians about... um, about criticism and correction of a fellow believer, what it says is that if you are going to confront somebody about their behavior or something that they're doing wrong, then you need to be willing to bear their burden. And what bearing their burden means, you're going to walk, side, walk alongside them and help them through the situation. So if you are going to criticize, say say your, your brother has a problem with alcohol and you want him to go to you know get him some help, well, you could just say, well, I think you need to go to rehab. That might be very well true, but it's just hurtful, and it's not going to help solve the problem. It just makes you come off as judgmental. Right. Now, if you say, "I want to sit down and have a conversation with you, and I care for you, and I love you, and I want to help you through this, and I found a facility that um, is local, and uh, I can get you uh, free tuition to go to this through this program." And I'll even go to the first session with you to help you through it because I want to walk through this with you and I want to help you if you're interested in, in pursuing this. Yeah. So then it puts back on the other person. You're not the one that is changing them. It's up to them at whether they want to change or not. But the point is that you're willing to bear the burden with them because that's what we're called to do in Galatians. If we correct somebody, we need to be willing to bear the burden alongside them.
0: Yeah, that's good advice. What about if I'm the one who's receiving the criticism and I'm not so excited to receive it. I may need to hear it, but I don't necessarily want to hear it. What is the best attitude for me to have in that situation?
2: Yeah, so that's a good question. Yeah, criticism is hard when we're on the other side of it, when we're the receiver. Uh, one one thing that we can do is um, just filter it through our own perspective and not be reactionary. So yeah. the key is uh, if, if You know, somebody says something to you, there may be a bit of truth to it, but it doesn't mean that you need to um, react right away to it, because a lot of times our reaction is going to be harsh. You know, when somebody says something that's critical, our our immediate uh, defense mechanism is to be um, defensive and uh, to react in a way that's not so nice. So what we need to do is take a step back and say, "Okay, I appreciate your input. And, and then you just kind of file it back in and, or put it in your back pocket, and then you can unpack that criticism later and then look at it objectively. You know, for example, if your sister says, oh, you need to lose weight to have a better dating life, well, then you can say, thanks, okay. You don't have to really react to it at that time, but then look at it later on and decide what you want to do for it, for yourself, for your own life. Yeah. And, and yeah. sometimes there is truth involved But it doesn't mean that you need to react to it in that moment Because a lot of times our reaction is is not going to be nice
0: Oh, that's so true We're going to take a short break Dr. Magdalena Battles with us Six Hidden Behaviors That Destroy Families is her book And we'll be right back on Janet Meffer today Ministry of Preborn is there for moms in crisis who are choosing between life and death for their preborn babies. Meet Sophie. At 22 weeks pregnant, Sophie was pressured by her mother and boyfriend to terminate her pregnancy. After meeting with a preborn counselor, she found the love and support she needed. After I had that first sound and I saw her and I was looking at the pictures over and over and over again, that's when I decided I was going to stand up to my mother and tell her, no, I can't do an abortion. Sophie chose life, and now she's awaiting the birth of her baby girl. Every day, Preborn is on the front lines, fighting Planned Parenthood to help young moms just like Sophie to choose life. For a gift of $140 today, you can help to rescue five babies' lives. And now through a matching gift, your gift will be doubled, rescuing 10 babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at Janetmefford.com. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's Gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent His Son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's Word to Bible-less believers around the world for only five years. $5 or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800 YESWORD. That's 800 Yes Word, or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the Scripture. There are those who have been looking for the Scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. That's 800 YESWORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Well, here's a good verse, Proverbs sixteen twenty eight. a perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. We welcome you back to the show. Dr. Magdalena Battles is my guest. We're talking about her book, Six Hidden Behaviors That Destroy Families, Strategies for Healthier and More Loving Relationships. And that's one of the hidden behaviors that destroy families, gossip. That's one of the ones that you mentioned, Magdalena, in your book. How do you curtail it in a family? If you have a family that, you know, all families do talk about each other. It's just a reality of life but when does that discussion about a family member fall into gossip in a harmful way that really can destroy a family ultimately?
2: Yes, gossip is, is uh, talking about person in a, uh, another person in a way that is detrimental or negative, even if it may be the truth. So you could be saying, oh, so-and-so is going through a divorce, and did you hear that You know, their husband or their wife had an affair? That might be the truth but it's hurtful because it is negative information about their personal life. So um, gossip, it doesn't need to be false information in order for it to be gossip. It can be true information, but if it is harmful to their reputation or harmful if if they wouldn't want it being said about them behind their back, um, it is something that uh, shouldn't be said. And so with families, what we need to do is we need to take an opportunity to Um, if we're thinking about a family member or are inquisitive about their lives, we need to pick up the phone and call them ourselves. I remember my mom asking me one time, or I was on the phone with my mom and I said to her, I said, Oh, how's, how's Justin, my brother, Justin doing. And, and I said something like, Oh, I heard such and such, you know, he was dating this other girl now. And this was several years ago um, when he was still single. And, and she said to me, why don't you pick up the phone and call him? I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. And you know, she was right. And I, it kind of took me, um, by surprise and i thought she's right you know i don't have to wait for him to call me the phone works both ways and if i want to find out what's going on with his life i should just pick up the phone and call him there's no reason for me to be getting the information about his life secondhand from my mom true so i think we need to facilitate um interactions and communications about our family members from themselves not from second or third parties.
0: Well, right. And how do you see gossip ultimately harming your relationship with that person? Because when you're talking about the fact that you'd rather discuss the business of a family member to another family member rather than directly to that family member, that that erodes trust over time, doesn't it? That's really the long-term effect of gossip.
2: It is, absolutely. Uh, Trust is completely broken down when gossip happens within a family. And there's a good principle behind this in that, if you, if, some, if somebody is willing to gossip with you about somebody else, they're likely to be willing to gossip about you as well. Yeah. Behind your back. Sure. So if they're talking, to, if they're willing to talk to you about other family members, then they're doing the same thing about you behind your back, and so you, you kind of. Um, it just breaks down your trust because you know that they're doing it to you too. They're doing it about you behind your back as well. And trust is broken down. You know, they can't trust that they're going to keep your information confidential or keep it private. Um, Yeah. it, It just really erodes the relationship and the trust and trust, is the foundation of any relationship
0: it really is and this is kind of a good segue into the fourth hidden behavior that you mentioned which is deception and you've got an entire chapter on when you have violated someone's trust deception doesn't necessarily have to be something as big as maybe adultery or something along those lines but deception is a really horrible thing to go on in a family what do you do when you violated somebody's trust
2: Yes. When you violate somebody's trust, the first thing to do is to come clean and be honest about it and to sincerely apologize for um, the error of your ways. Uh, You know, a lot of people, when they uh, are deceptive to family members, it often happens because they're trying to cover up their own sin. Mm -hmm. They've done something wrong, so they try to cover it up. And it might start as little white lies, but they're still lies. Well, those lies build upon lies build upon lies because they keep trying to cover up this lie and this mountain is building of this deception. And unfortunately what happens in some families is people end up going to their grave with these deception and lies that come out after their death. Mm-hmm. And, you know, big things come out such as infidelity, you know, that, that somebody has had an affair for years while they, you know, were alive and, and married or, um, you know, they embezzled from a family business and it didn't come out until they passed away. What happens is when this this these deceptions come out it destroys their legacy and um, what really needs to happen is people need to be honest and they need to be apologetic and work to repair the relationship while they're still alive because a legacy can be ruined and it's not something that can be repaired when
0: they're no longer here. Yeah, yeah, good point. Something else that you discuss is a lack of inclusion. I I think this one is really good food for thought for people because I think most families have experienced something along these lines where a a particular family member is not welcome or is not liked very well. This can happen when you have an in-law situation like you're mentioning in your book. And you write that it's a shame that quote-unquote good Christian families are some of the worst offenders when it comes to rejection through exclusion. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that probably will resonate with a lot of listeners. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, a lot of times people aren't included in family uh, get-togethers or family vacations, or only certain cliques within the family get together and they leave other people out. And it might be because, oh, they're well, they're they're, they're different than us. They have different beliefs, and we just don't get along with them as well. Or oh, that person has always says no, so why even bother asking? You know, they're just going to say no anyway. Well, when people are excluded, it makes them feel that they aren't wanted by their own family and that they don't belong. And God created us for relationships with our families. You know, He put us in those families for a reason. Uh, And so we need to work on including all family members, regardless of the differences um, that we have, and um, work towards loving one another, regardless of... Um, those feelings that we may have, because you will find that we can get along with everybody regardless, and being inclusive is definitely the way Jesus walked in His lifetime. And so we need to be more Christ-like and work to include people. That means, you know, you might have that black sheep of the family that, you know, nobody ever seems to invite for Christmas. Well, maybe it's Your turn, you know, you need to step up and be that family member who is going to be inclusive because you can be the one to change the course of your family and change the life of that person by including them and inviting them to the next holiday.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because sometimes when you have a situation where one family member is excluded for whatever reason, then other family members start taking sides. You can end up with, you know, so-and-so, yeah. the cousin Mary wasn't invited to the wedding and that really made the mother mad and the sisters mad. But now on the other side, you have Aunt Judy who's mad at them, you know, and then it just kind of yeah. goes through the whole family and then it can trickle down to their kids and then their kids are mad at each other, even though they have no relationship with each other that requires them to right. do that. I mean, that's that's the stuff I think that isn't mm-hmm. talked about very much is how much it can reverberate throughout the entire clan, not just between the offender and the offendee.
2: You're absolutely right. It's like a ripple effect. It starts, you know, with one little pebble and it creates one little wave. Well, those waves can go from generation to generation and they just keep going. And, and unless somebody is willing to change the course of those ripples and willing to break it up and willing to turn a corner and say, no, we're not going to do it this way anymore. I think we need to work to get along and work to be inclusive so we can all be together. Um, that's the only way that true change can happen.
0: True. That's great. That's great. What about the aspect of healing? How do we trust the Lord for these matters in our families and really allow Him to heal us? I'm sure, you know, just because we're Christians doesn't mean some of us haven't experienced some of the things you talk about in the book. But what about starting that process of healing and being able to make things right in your family if you really have gone through some of these things? Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, you know, we can't change other people, but we can change ourselves and we can change the way we react to things. And so change within the family starts with ourselves. And sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes that self-introspection and looking at the mistakes we've made, that's hard. That can be difficult to um, deal with, but God can help us through it and God can help us change our behaviors and change our reactions. So in any situation, regardless of the mistakes that have been made in a family, God can heal. And God can bring restoration, but we need to turn it over to Him. So the first step is turning it over to God and saying, God, you know, my family's not perfect, I'm obviously not perfect, I need to work on my family relationships. Can you reveal to me what I need to do to work on my relationships so I can have better family uh, relationships with, with everybody in the extended family?
0: I think that's and great. And God will reveal that. Yeah. yeah. I think that's great because, you know, I often say this, I have a difficult time changing anything in myself, much less changing anybody around me. So, you know, it has to yeah. start with me. It has to start with me going before the Lord and saying, Lord, I really messed up. And please, you know, look into my heart, Lord, and, and create in me a clean heart. That's that's the first order of business. And I think this is really good advice in this book. It's called Six Hidden Behaviors That Destroy Families by Dr. Magdalena Battles. You can check out her website, livingjoy daily.com. So good to have you here, Magdalena. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. God bless you. Thank you so much Thank for being you. here. Thank you for joining us on Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time.